0: And When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Our New Testament lesson is Ephesians 2 not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, sir.
1: We're continuing in our study of the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel and we come uh, to the verses following what we saw last week, the uh, story of the Magi, the pagan astronomers, wise men, wealthy people of influence, the intellectuals of the pagan world who had been watching, watching, to come to know the God who made all this and whom God in his grace spoke to and drew. And you know the story well, you know how they were warned not to return to Herod and so they went by a different route back and we pick up this account in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2 and we will read down through the end of the chapter. Now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. On the face of it, on the surface, it's easy simply to read this as sort of transition on our way to the good stuff in chapter 3, when an adult Jesus goes to John the Baptist for his baptism and then is thrust out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted in our place to stand his ground and from that baptism and the baptism of fire of temptation in the wilderness to return, gather His disciples, and then chapter five through chapter seven, the tremendous, greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. So if you know the structure of the gospel, it's so easy to come to this point and just press on through, read it quickly. But it's always dangerous to read anything too quickly, especially the Scriptures. Uh, I thought of that this morning when one of our men came up to me. I think he was joking. I think he had read my license plate more clearly. But he said, we parked behind you today. We saw your, your license. Why does it say, Friends of the Smokers, um, which I'm sure was it's Friends of the Smokies, I'm supporting, supporting the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. But uh, I thought, well, that's kind of like what we do with the Scripture. Though so he was joking, sometimes in all seriousness, we're just in a hurry. We think, we've re- we think we know what we've read and we haven't. So let's not be friends of the smokers this morning. Let's go a little bit, <laughs> let's go a little deeper and uh, look at what Matthew is showing us. Because a deeper reading, we begin to realize that he is signaling to us how crucially important these verses are. Speak, Lord, your servant here. <laughs> um, how crucially important these verses are, and we know it because three times he tells us that what he's reporting to us here is the fulfillment of prophecy. So we have here themes that are being revealed that will help us read the rest of this gospel, and frankly the rest of the Bible, more deeply, more accurately. But beyond that, as I hope to show, he's also revealing to us some basic themes to help us know how to read history, how to read current events, how to read the stories of our own lives. And so there are Three particular themes here, there are many more, and certainly ones that I haven't uh, had the wit to uh, see, but there are three that I think are important that I would bring before you this morning. Um, Whoever has that, would you please find it and make it go bye-bye? Thank you. Um, Sorry, I'm an old man, I'm easily distracted. Sorry. Didn't mean for you to go bye-bye. <laughs> just the phone. Okay, where was I? Um, these deep three thematic pictures that I'm hoping we'll get. The the first is obvious on the one hand, but easy to miss on the other, and it's just this. From the moment of his birth, not all things deferred until he was going to John the Baptist for baptism, but from the very moment of Jesus' birth, God had entered human history, and the great disruption had begun. You see that from the moment he was born, Everything depended for those who heard of the birth, however they heard of it. Everything depended from then on for their lives on how they would respond to that birth. Now, it's easy just to say, okay, I got that move on, how we respond to Jesus. But how often have you really thought about what Matthew shows us about Joseph? Joseph disappears from the gospel story so early, he apparently died young, and or by the time Jesus was an adult, and steps back into the picture to receive baptism. But Joseph is really the, the key figure in the opening of Matthew's gospel in the same way that Mary is the key figure that Luke focuses on. And we see him responding immediately in faith to whatever God tells him. Remember back in chapter one when he discovers that his fiance is pregnant. He, being a just man, Matthew says, doesn't want her publicly humiliated even though he's been publicly humiliated by this. But he resolves to put her away quietly just to try to protect her. And what happens? He goes to bed at night, I'm sure with broken heart, and God's messenger speaks to him in a dream and says, do not be afraid to take her as your wife because this thing is from God. And what does he do? He does exactly what the Lord told him to do. And he marries her and will bear, as we saw then, through little comments here and there that appear in the Gospels, the indignity of the story still out there that Mary had actually been pregnant before they married. So that sometimes she would even be referred to, or Jesus would be referred to sometimes by his critics as Jesus Ben Mary rather than Jesus Ben Joseph. Second time, The Lord speaks to him in a dream. The wise men have come. They've received this incredible visitation. Their little baby has been given the gifts that one would give a king. These wise men have bowed low before him and worshipped him. And how they must have been wondering, when, when do we begin to claim all of this? And the Lord's messenger comes to him in the night and says get up, get out, take the child, go down to Egypt, in this seemingly incredibly ironic act. God had called His people out of Egypt, and now He's saying go back to Egypt because Herod is seeking the life of the child. And so they get up at night and flee, and it would have been a journey of a few days through across the desert with a mother and small child to reach the safety of Egypt. Rome was still in control of Egypt, but Herod wasn't. And so they were out of Herod's reach by being in Egypt. And then, again, they've been there for a time. He's trying somehow as a carpenter, I guess, to make a life in a foreign land. And then God's messenger comes to him in a dream and says, Get up! Wake up! Get him up! Herod's dead. Go back to the land. For out of Egypt, as the prophet has said, I've called my son so they go. And yet again, when he's there and he hears that Archelaus, Herod's son, is over Judea, he thinks, well, you know, he may still be after my son. And so he's told yet again in a dream, the fourth dream that's recorded. God sends his messenger and says, go to Nazareth, go back home. We wouldn't know if we only had Matthew, that that was their home but we also have Luke's Gospel. And so from Luke, we know that Nazareth was the home of Joseph and Mary. Originally, they had left Nazareth and gone to Bethlehem because of the census that was being taken and the new taxation. So they're going home, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. The only point that I would make is, isn't it understandable why God chose that man to raise his son. I mean, what a man who, when God spoke to him in a dream, I mean, I know myself, and it would have to be an overwhelming dream for me not to say, boy, that was weird, you know. I'm going to go get my coffee. But he was so attuned to the voice of God that when God spoke, he obeyed. And that is, in the Bible, the mark of faith. It's called the obedience of faith. That's how you know, for the Jewish people, how do you know what you believe? By what you do. How do you know if you believe in the Lord? You obey the Lord. Not perfectly, but that's the trajectory of your life. So we see that response from the announcement of the pregnancy on the part of Joseph. And we've already looked last week, and I just remind you, of this incredible response on the part of these wise men. This reminder that the Savior had come, not just for the Jewish people, not just for the house of Israel, but that He'd come for all. And so we have these wise men come from the east and, and worship. And, and note that they, they weren't just curious people coming to see what this was. They brought the gifts that you give to a king. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, they came bearing gifts. They would have found him in a very humble home, I'm sure. Surely not still in the stable, but in a humble place. And yet they told King Herod, we have come seeking the one who is born king of the Jews so that we might what? So that we might see him, take selfies with him, go back and have a story to tell, so that we might worship him. So they knew that God was up to something far more than simply another earthly king. We have come to worship him. And so they come and bring their gifts. Another response. And then there's the response of Herod. This horrific response of one who knew what the prophets had prophesied, who knew the stories of the coming one to sit on David's throne, who knew that only God could have so orchestrated it that a star would lead these men. He knew that he was up against the living God, and he didn't care, because his response to God at work in human history was to seek to do everything that he could to thwart it and to work his own will. I had the pleasure this last week of reading an excellent uh, essay by our own Brady Lee uh, entitled, Uh, Why Does Herod Rage? And it's an examination of the, the mindset behind the kind of horror and wickedness that we still see in our world, and I'll speak more of that in a little bit. But here's the response of wickedness. And if you and I are attuned to our own hearts, we know that we do this in some small form every time we turn our back on what we know the Lord would have us do or be, or every time we reach out and grasp for what we know that he has said is not for us. From the moment that Jesus came into the world, the response to him is the absolutely defining key factor in the life of those who know that He has come. That's the first theme, and this will work out over and over again as we move toward the passion of Christ. The second flows from it, and I'll just say it very quickly, it's really connected to it, but it is that all of human history is flowing toward the Christ event. It's not just this nation doing this and that nation doing that and all these things. And somehow God's trying to make sense of the mess. So he's, no, no. It's flowing toward Christ and then flowing out from him. The, uh, the French biblical theologian of the middle of the last century, uh, a man named Oscar Kuhlmann, Uh, described what I'm trying to say in this way, and it's helpful to me to visualize it. He said the focus of of human history as described in the Bible sharpens down, sharpens down, sharpens down until Christ, and then explodes back out in an ever-widening focus. What does he mean? You think about the biblical account. It starts with the creation of the heavens and the earth and God creating humanity. And we have there every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation in seed form coming forth. And then the pre-flood history is the pattern that goes on and on and on because humanity rebels and finally God saves one family out of it. And it's like a new creation. The earth is washed and clean. and Life comes forth again through Noah and his family, and what do they do? They immediately begin to go their own way to try to fill and subdue the earth in their own power, their own name. And on the plains of Shinar, present day, what was then Babylon and Iraq today, on the plains of Shinar, they seek to build a city all the way into the heavens with its towers, assaulting the very throne room of God so that they can make their name great, so that they can have a great legacy on earth and be remembered. And so God in his mercy and grace comes down. I've always loved that. They think they've built a skyscraper into the heavens. And, and it's like a, a rumor of this comes into the presence of God. And God says, let's go down and see this thing. We can't even see it from here, this thing they think so mighty. but But there it is, God goes down. In grace troubles the languages and they scatter over the earth. And then out of the rubble of Babel, Genesis 11, Genesis 12 starts with the call of Abraham. And God says, I am now through one people going to do for all people what they most need. And he calls Abram and says, through you, all the families of the earth, all the nations will be blessed. And so it focuses down one family one people, Israel, who are charged with being a light to the nations, who are charged with showing forth through the written Word that God gave them, and then the living Word who, whom we celebrate here, narrows focus down until the Christ appears. And He is the fulfillment of all that God had called Israel to be. In His flesh, He fulfills both God's promises and God's requirements, and humanity isn't. That's why it's so moving when, without realizing what he's saying, Pilate points to him and says, behold the man, because there is humanity in its fullness as God intended it. humanity in God's image filled. It's narrowed down to one man who fulfills as the God-man everything that humanity was created to be and to do. And then it begins exploding back out, the church. And then finally, those gathered round the throne in Revelation, that majestic scene, those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are singing the song of the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed men to God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made of them a kingdom and priests unto our God, and they shall reign in all the earth. Brothers and sisters, that's our destiny. You and I are there. That's where this story is going. And he wants us to read history like that. God working all of his purposes down to this point. It's almost like a a theological big bang brings it right down to Christ, and then it explodes back out. And that's why Paul in Colossians 1 says that he's both the firstborn of creation and he's the firstborn from the dead. All things new begin in him. He is preeminent. Okay, you get the picture. That's the second. Now the third is really where I – how much time do we have? Um, okay, go fast. The third theme is really, for me, the biggie, and it's this. Promise and fulfillment are not simply something we read about in the Bible or perhaps look forward to in the new heavens and new earth. And The promises of Scripture are not simply fulfilled once. So if you say, oh, the prophet said this, but here it is, now it's been fulfilled. No, no. Promise, the promises of God have layers and layers all throughout human history and throughout your life and mine, layers of fulfillment, fulfilled over and over again. Only when we realize that do we stop worrying about the people with the charts and, you know, the, you know, all the eschatological stuff. Just don't believe that. Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, that the Father is set by His authority, but you're to be on mission. Your job is the mission of the church. I've told you before that, Roy Taylor's great remark when he was asked his view of end times, and he said, I'm, I'm not on the planning committee, I'm on the welcoming committee. That's, that's exactly what it's meant to be. And so, in the promises, and he gives us three illustrations, and with these, I'm almost done. First of all, he quotes, and Sarah read it for us from Hosea 11: Out of Egypt, I've called my son. But this is recapitulated over and over and over again, both literally and spiritually. Abraham had had gone down into Egypt, and it's easy for us to think Egypt is the place of bondage and brokenness and sin. Be more nuanced than that in your reading. What was Egypt first for for the family of Jacob? It was the place of refuge, of salvation. God in His mercy, and you know the whole story, I won't relate it, but had gotten Joseph down there where he was imprisoned and went through years of of trouble as God shaped him and molded him and prepared him to be the second leader behind Pharaoh so that he could do what? So that in the years of famine, he could save God's people. And so when they first went down, it was not a place of bondage, it was a place of salvation. It was a place of life. And there's a sense in which the Egypt of this world is exactly that for every one of us. We can see it in its darkness and its brokenness, but it's also the very place where we are nurtured, where we came to life, where where we learn and where we grow and where we love and and experience friendship and family and challenge and, and set goals. Egypt functions at different levels. It was first a place of salvation only generations later when a pharaoh who was like Herod decided that there were too many Israelite males, the people had become too many and too powerful because God was forming that family into a nation. Israel was becoming a nation in Egypt. And so he said, put put the men to death just just as Herod later would do. And it was out of that act that God put his chosen one, Moses, into the household of Pharaoh's daughter so that she would there receive the kind of instruct, so he would receive the kind of instruction that he would have to have in order later to be able to lead the people of God for all those years in the wilderness. God was working this through. So it became a place of bondage, a place of brokenness when it was time for God to do His saving work and show His mighty arm and bring them out. And how many of us have experienced that in our own lives? The nurturing family, the loving place, and then we launch out and suddenly we realize that so many of these things that were good things had become for us bondage and brokenness because we were trusting in those They become sources, not of strength and growth and purpose, but places of pride and separation from God and wanting to pursue our own ends. And I've now been made competent. I'm smart. I'm educated. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to go my own way. And those very things that had been blessings now become curses to us from which God in His mercy must call us out of Egypt. He calls us over and over and over again. And again, we see in the second quotation uh, when the children were killed, and Matthew quotes the, the, those beautiful words from Jeremiah 31. Rachel weeping for her children. Her heart's been broken, her children have been taken from her. And it's easy if you don't read the Old Testament or you don't check out, uh, again, whenever you see a quotation, I think. It was M.T. Wright that used to say that he's still alive. He probably still says it. Um, whenever you see a, a, a quotation, don't just read it, because you, it's, it's, he says it's like those computer links. You've got to tap it and go to the text in the Old Testament, read it in its fullness. Do you know what Jeremiah is talking about in chapter 31, where we have these poignant words of Rachel weeping for her children? He is promising God's people that he's going to save them, that he's going to redeem them, that all this bad that has happened, he's going to make new, that the child who's been lost is going to finally be restored by the goodness of God. Those of you who have lost children to violence and tragedy, God is saying in that chapter, you who, like Rachel, were weeping for your children and not wanting to be comforted, God will in the end restore these to you said, you will see them come from the East and from the West. I will bring them to you. You These things matter to us now. If God is God and if this is His Word and these are His promises, He is continuing to fulfill these things over and over and over in our lives. If only we've the wit to see it. I'm out of time and I have one more, but this is the one that's always the showstopper for anybody who's a careful reader because um he ends by saying you know they moved to nazareth to fulfill uh that which the prophets had said um he will be called a nazarene the problem is that there is no (coughs) no prophecy in the old testament anywhere that says the messiah will be called a nazarene in fact Nazareth is never once even mentioned in the Old Testament. And so some have said, well, he's talking, he's relating it really to Nazarites, but that's utterly unrelated. That was a vow some people took. I think this is what it's about. It's not my idea. Uh, Some of the church fathers saw this and others more recently. And to me, it's so beautiful. And it's a good way to begin to bring it to a close. Nazareth was, to the first century Jewish people, considered the boondocks. It was like Pickens, South Carolina. I'm I'm sorry if any of you are from Pickens. (laughs) But you know, it just, it, it was nowhere. And what had, he doesn't say as a prophet said or the prophet said, and a quote, he said, as the prophets, the prophets said, you know, he'll be called Nazarene. What was a Nazarene, a person from Nazareth? It was a nobody from nowhere. It was, for example, when Isaiah said he's a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He had no beauty that men. He was despised. He was rejected. We, I think we have biblical evidence that that's what's going on, because do you remember in John chapter 1, when Philip had met Jesus, and he wants to go get his buddy, um, and, and bring him, to, <coughs> excuse me, to Jesus. And he goes and finds him, and he says, we found the one who was promised. We found the Messiah. And the guy's listening, and then he says, Jesus of Nazareth. What does Nathanael do? He laughs. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Nazareth? That's a nowhere with nobodies. And that's where the one who came to redeem us grew up a nobody from nowhere. Just like you and me, if we're honest about it. Until God's grace gets a hold of us and begins to grip us. Because he's always turning the world's values on their head. Always flipping them. That's God's way of doing it. He goes to the poor and the hurting and the wounded and those who are despised. And he doesn't just proclaim a message. He joins himself to them. He becomes one with them. What do we do with this? The clock is not my friend this morning. I'm sorry, but I can't just, can't just let you go. What are you going to do? Fire me? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm retired. Yeah. So let me make two applications. The first is for my own Personal story. Um, I've, I've told you all before that my dear late wife uh, was Jewish. And, you know, one of two children, her older brother Alan. He was religious. Marianne and I were just wild. We got married, but she kind of tried to relieve her parents by saying, I know he's not Jewish, but he's going to be a doctor, because that's what at that point we thought. Um, little did they know. But she, in that first year, the Lord got a hold of both of us in our first year of marriage up in Boston. And the Lord saved her during that time, and she became a, a Jesus follower and believer. People would say, you're a completed Jew. She'd say, I'm a Presbyterian. What? What's this, you know? Like, you're a completed Gentile. Don't give me an arm." But her brother, who was seeking to know the Lord, in his historic context, was very upset when he learned that she'd become a Christian. he called me and said, you know, this is, we are, since the slaughter, the Holocaust, our numbers are going down, not up. And the hardest thing is when Jewish people convert. And I said, well, she's still Jewish, Alan. He said, I know, but she needs to hold to the faith. And so he wanted to talk, and in a rare moment of wisdom in that early era, I said to him, well, look, I have you at a disadvantage because I've read through the Hebrew Scriptures. Have, have you read through the, the Christian Scriptures? And he said, no. And I said, I'd love to talk to you about these things, but we can't if you haven't read. So isn't it fair? He was a very bright guy. I said, isn't it fair? Read the book, and then I'll talk to you all you want. He said, well, that's fair. I didn't hear from him. And he loved to argue. I kept waiting week after week, month. Finally, he called, and he said, I didn't make it through Matthew. He said, everything Matthew said was fulfillment of all of the Scriptures that I've grown up praying for and hoping for and longing for. He'd become a believer. Because of promise and fulfillment, you see. Second thing, what do you do with it today? What do I do with it? I would encourage you, particularly at the most painful and broken places of your life, January is a really hard month for a number of you who've lost people you love, others of you at other times of year. It's so hard when you've lost those you love dearly. Realize that all of God's promises are yours in Christ Jesus. They are all yours. Everything that you think you have irrevocably lost will at last when he says, behold, I make all things new and wipes away our tears. He is going, restore beyond what we could ask or imagine. And those who today, Brady's paper had related it to people in our day like Vladimir Putin. How do we understand the mind of wickedness that works? We understand it by whether or not they've responded in faith to the one whom God has sent or whether they are still seeking to establish their own power, their own their own way and are ready to destroy anyone else who gets in their way. All the destroyers today, unless they repent, will at last find that every blow that they have used to strike the people of God, whether it's a Putin or a Stalin or a Hitler, or whether it's a university professor who loves to mock, or the head of a multinational corporation who is so afraid of being canceled that he will support every sick and depraved proposition being made today. Every one of them, if they do not come to terms with the living God, will find that every blow they've struck against truth and righteousness will come onto their own heads when God makes all things new. And you and I can live in that confidence because Christ has conquered death from the inside out. He has kicked down its walls and he's led us into life. Would you stand? Father, thank you that you are our great God and King and we need not be afraid of anything or anyone. And I pray that you and your mercy will help us when we look at those who oppose your kingdom First to pray for them, to pray for their salvation. But Father, if they will not turn to you and bend the knee, we ask you to bring the day when you remove them. And We pray for the day when at last the earth is filled with your glory and the knowledge of your glory, even as the waters cover the sea. And so we trust you and entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name.
0: the darkness we were waiting without hope without light till from heaven